Section 20 of The Morals, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Morals, Volume 1, by Plutarch. Translated by several hands. Corrected and revised by William W. Goodwin. Plutarch's Rules for the Preservation of Health. A Dialogue. Part 2. But we shall begin and treat of each of these, and first we shall discourse of those exercises which are proper for a scholar. And as he that said he should prescribe nothing for the teeth to them that dwelt by the seaside, taught them the benefit of the sea-water, so one would think that there was no need of writing to scholars concerning exercise. For it is wonderful what an exercise the daily use of speech is, not only as to health, but even to strength. I mean not fleshly and athletic health, or such as makes one's external parts firm, like the outside of a house, but such as gives a right tone and inward vigour to the vital and noble parts, and that the vital spirit increases strength is made plain by them who anointed the wrestlers, who commanded them, when their limbs were rubbed, to withstand such frictions in some sort, in holding their wind, observing carefully those parts of the body which were smeared and rubbed. Now the voice, being a motion of the spirit, not superficially, but firmly seated in the bowels, as it were in a fountain, increases the heat, thins the blood, purges every vein, opens all the arteries, neither does it permit the coagulation or condensation of any superfluous humour, which would settle like dregs in those vessels which receive and work our nourishment. Wherefore we ought by much speaking to accustom ourselves to this exercise, and make it familiar to us. And if we suspect that our bodies are weaker or more tired than ordinary, by reading or reciting. For what riding in a coach is compared with bodily exercise, that is reading compared with disputing. If you carry your voice softly and low, as it were in the chariot of another man's words. For disputes bring with them a vehemence and contention, adding the labour of the mind to that of the body. All passionate noise, and such as would force our lungs, ought to be avoided, for irregular and violent strains of our voice may break something within us, or bring us into convulsions. But when a student has either read or disputed, before he walks abroad, he ought to make use of a gentle and tepid friction to open the pores of his body as much as is possible, even to his very bowels, that so his spirits may gently and quietly diffuse themselves to the extreme parts of his body. The bounds that this friction ought not to exceed are that it be done no longer than it is pleasant to our sense and without pain. For he that so allays the disturbance which is within himself, and the agitation of his spirits, will not be troubled by that superfluity which remains in him, and if it be unseasonable for it to walk, or if his business hinder him, it is no great matter for nature has already received satisfaction. Whether one be at sea or in a public inn, it is not necessary that he should be silent, though all the company laugh at him. For where it is no shame to eat, it is certainly no shame to exercise yourself. But it is worse to stand in awe of, and be troubled with seamen, carriers, and innkeepers, that laugh at you, not because you play at ball or fight a shadow, but because in your discourse you exercise yourself by teaching others, or by inquiring and learning something yourself, or else by calling to mind something. For Socrates said, 
he that uses the exercise of dancing had need have a room big enough to hold seven beds but he that makes either singing or discourse his exercise may do it either standing or lying in any place but this one thing we must observe that when we are conscious to ourselves that we are too full or have been concerned with venus or laboured hard we do not too much strain our voice as so many rhetoricians and readers in philosophy do some of whom out of glory and ambition some for reward or private contentions have forced themselves beyond what has been convenient our niger when he was teaching philosophy in galatia by chance swallowed the bone of a fish but a stranger coming to teach in his place niger fearing he might run away with his repute continued to read his lectures though the bone still stuck in his throat from whence a great and hard inflammation arising he being unable to undergo the pain permitted a deep incision to be made by which wound the bone was taken out but the wound growing worse and rheum falling upon it it killed him but this may be mentioned hereafter in its proper place after exercise to use a cold bath is boyish and has more ostentation in it than health for though it may seem to harden our bodies and make them not so subject to outward accidents yet it does more prejudice to the inward parts by hindering transpiration fixing the humours and condensing those vapours which love freedom and transpiration besides necessity will force those who use cold baths into that exact and accurate way of diet they would so much avoid and make them take care they be not in the least extravagant for every such error is sure to receive a bitter reproof but a warm bath is much more pardonable for it does not so much destroy our natural vigour and strength as it does conduce to our health laying a soft and easy foundation for concoction preparing those things for digestion which are not easily digested without any pain if they be not very crude and deep lodged and freeing us from all inward weariness but when we do sensibly perceive our bodies to be indifferent well or as they ought to be we should omit bathing and anoint ourselves by the fire which is better if the body stand in need of heat for it dispenses a warmth throughout but we should make use of the sun more or less as the temper of the air permits so much may suffice to have been said concerning exercises as for what has been said of diet before if any part of it be profitable in instructing us how we should allay and bring down our appetites there yet remains one thing more to be advised that if it be troublesome to treat one's belly like one broke loose and to contend with it though it has no ears as cato said then ought we to take care that the quality of what we eat may make the quantity more light and we should eat cautiously of such food as is solid and most nourishing for it is hard always to refuse it such as flesh cheese dried figs and boiled eggs but more freely of those things which are thin and light such as moist herbs fowl and fish if it be not too fat for he that eats such things as these may gratify his appetite and yet not oppress his body but ill-digestion is chiefly to be feared after flesh for it presently very much clogs us and leaves ill relics behind it it would be best to accustom oneself to eat no flesh at all for the earth affords plenty enough of things fit not only for nourishment but for delight and enjoyment some of which you may eat without much preparation and others you may make pleasant by adding diverse other things to them but since custom is almost a second nature we may eat flesh but not to the cloying of our appetites, like wolves or lions, 
but only to lay as it were a foundation and bulwark for our nourishment and then come to other meats and sauces which are more agreeable to the nature of our bodies and do less dull our rational soul which seems to be enlivened by a light and brisk diet as for liquids we should never make milk our drink but rather take it as food it yielding much solid nourishment as for wine we must say to it what euripides said to venus thy joys with moderation i would have and that I ne'er may want them humbly crave. For wine is the most beneficial of all drinks, the pleasantest medicine in the world, and of all dainties the least cloying to the appetite, provided more regard be given to the opportunity of the time of drinking it than even to its being properly mixed with water. Water, not only when it is mixed with wine, but also if it be drunk by itself between mixed wine and water, makes the mingled wine less hurtful. We should accustom ourselves, therefore, in our daily diet, to drink two or three glasses of water, which will allay the strength of the wine, and make drinking of water familiar to our body, that so in a case of necessity it may not be looked on as a stranger, and we be offended at it. It so falls out that some have then the greatest inclination for wine, when there is most need they should drink water. For such men, when they have been exposed to great heat of the sun, or have fallen into a chill, or have been speaking vehemently, or have been more than ordinarily thoughtful about anything, or after any fatigue or labour, are of the opinion that they ought to drink wine, as if nature required some repose for the body and some diversion after its labours. But nature requires no such repose, if you would call pleasure repose, but desires only such an alteration as shall be between pleasure and pain, in which case we ought to abate of our diet, and either wholly abstain from wine, or drink it allayed with very much mixture of water. For wine, being sharp and fiery, increases the disturbances of the body, exasperates them, and wounds the parts affected, which stand more in need of being comforted and smoothed, which water does the best of anything. If, when we are not thirsty, we drink warm water after labour, exercise, or heat, we find our inward parts loosened and smoothed by it, for the moisture of water is gentle and not violent, but that of wine carries a great force in it, which is no ways agreeable in the forementioned cases. And if any one should be afraid that abstinence would bring upon the body that acrimony and bitterness which some say it will, he is like those children who think themselves much wronged because they may not eat just before the fit of a fever. The best mean between both of these is drinking of water. We oftentimes sacrifice to Bacchus himself without wine, doing very well in accustoming ourselves not to be always desirous of wine. Minos made the pipe and the crown be laid aside at the sacrifice when there was mourning, and yet we know an afflicted mind is not at all affected by either the pipe or crown, but there is no body so strong to which, in commotion or a fever, wine does not do a great deal of injury. The Lydians are reported in a famine to have spent one day in eating and the next in sports and drollery but a lover of learning and a friend to the muses, when at any time he is forced to sup later than ordinary, will not be so much a slave to his belly as to lay aside a geographical scheme when it is before him, or his book, or his lyre, but strenuously turning himself and taking his mind off from eating, he will, in the muses' name, drive away all such desires as so many harpies from his table. Will not the Scythian, in the midst of his cups, oftentimes handle his bow and twang the string, thereby rousing up himself from that drunkenness in which he was immersed? 
will a Greek be afraid, because he is laughed at, by books and letters gently to loosen and unbend any blind and obstinate desire? The young men in Menander, when they were drinking, were trepanned by a bawd, which brought in to them a company of handsome and richly attired women, but every one, as he said, cast down his eyes and fell to junketing, not one daring to look upon them. Lovers of learning have many fair and pleasant diversions, if they can no other way keep in their canine and brutish appetites when they see the table spread. The bawling of such fellows as anoint wrestlers, and the opinion of pedagogues that it hinders our nourishment and dulls one's heads to discourse of learning at table, are indeed of some force, then, when we are called upon to solve a fallacy like the Indus, or to dispute about the Kyrion at a feast. For though the pith of the palm-tree is very sweet, yet they say it will cause the headache. To discourse of logic at meals is not indeed a very delicious banquet, is rather troublesome, and pains one's head. But if there be any one who will not give us leave to discourse philosophically, or ask any question or read anything at table, though it be of those things which are not only decent and profitable, but also pleasantly merry, we will desire them not to trouble us, but to talk in this style to the athletes in the system and the palestra, who have laid aside their books and are wont to spend their whole time in jeers and scurrilous jests, being, as Aristo wittily expresses it, smooth and hard like the pillars in the gymnasium. But we must obey our physicians, who advise us to keep some interval between supper and sleep, and not to heap up together a great deal of victuals in our stomachs, and so shorten our breath, lest we presently, by crude and fermenting element, overcharge our digestion, but rather to take some space and breathing time before we sleep. As those who have a mind to exercise themselves after supper do not do it by running or wrestling, but rather by gentle exercise, such as walking or dancing, so when we intend to exercise our minds after supper, we are not to do it with anything of business or care, or with those sophistical disputes which bring us into a vainglorious and violent contention. But there are many questions in natural philosophy which are easy to discuss and to decide. There are many disquisitions which relate to manners which please the mind, as Homer expresses it, and do no way discompose it. Questions in history and poetry have been by some ingeniously called a second course to a learned man and a scholar. There are discourses which are no way troublesome, and besides, fables may be told, Nay, it is easier to discourse of the pipe and lyre, or hear them discoursed of, than it is to hear either of them played on. The quantity of time allowed for this exercise is till our meat be gently settled within us, so that our digestion may have power enough to master it. Aristotle is of opinion that to walk after supper stirs up our natural heat, but to sleep, if it be soon after, chokes it. Others again say that rest aids digestion, and that motion disturbs it. Hence some walk immediately after supper, others choose rather to keep themselves still. But that man seems to obtain the design of both, who cherishes and keeps his body quiet, not immediately suffering his mind to become heavy and idle, but, as has been said, gently distributing and lightening his spirits by either hearing or speaking some pleasant thing, such as will neither molest nor oppress him. Medicinal vomits and purges, which are the bitter reliefs of gluttony, are not to be attempted without great necessity. The manner of many is to fill themselves, because they are empty, and again, because they are full, to empty themselves contrary to nature, being no less tormented with being full than being empty, or rather, they are troubled at their fullness, 
as being a hindrance of their appetite, and are always emptying themselves, that they may make room for new enjoyment. The damage in these cases is evident, for the body is disordered and torn by both these. It is an inconvenience that always attends a vomit, that it increases and gives nourishment to this insatiable humour, for it engenders hunger, as violent and turbulent as a roaring torrent, which continually annoys a man, and forces him to his meat, not like a natural appetite that calls for food, but rather like inflammation that calls for plasters and physic. Wherefore his pleasures are short and imperfect, and in the enjoyment are very furious and unquiet, upon which there come distensions and affections of the pores, and retentions of the spirits, which will not wait for the natural evacuations, but run over the surface of the body, so that it is like an overloaded ship, where it is more necessary to throw something overboard than to take anything more in. Those disturbances in our bellies, which are caused by physic, corrupt and consume our inward parts, and do rather increase our superfluous humours than bring them away, which is as if one that was troubled at the number of Greeks that inhabited the city should call in the Arabians and Scythians. Some are so much mistaken that, in order that they may void their customary and natural superfluities, they take Cnidian berries, or scamony, or some other harsh and incongruous physic, which is more fit to be carried away by purge than it is able to purge us. It is best, therefore, by a moderate and regular diet to keep our body in order, so that it may command itself as to fullness or emptiness. If at any time there be a necessity, we may take a vomit, but without physic or much tampering, and such a one as will not cause any great disturbance, only enough to save us from indigestion by casting up gently what is superfluous. For as linen cloths, when they are washed with soap and nitre, are more worn out than when they are washed with water only, so physical vomits corrupt and destroy the body. If at any time we are costive, there is no medicine better than some sort of food which will purge you gently and with ease, the trial of which is familiar to all, and the use without any pain. But if it will not yield to those, we may drink water for some days, or fast, or take a clister, rather than take any troublesome purging physic, which most men are inclined to do, like that sort of women which take things on purpose to miscarry, that they may be empty and begin afresh. But to be done with these, there are some on the other side who are too exact in enjoining themselves to periodical and set fasts, doing amiss in teaching nature to want coercion when there is no occasion for it, and making that abstinence necessary which is not so, and all this at times when nature requires her accustomed way of living. It is better to use those injunctions we lay upon our bodies with more freedom, even when we have no ill symptom or suspicion upon us, and so to order our diet, as has been said, that our bodies may be always obedient to any change, and not be enslaved or tied up to one manner of living, nor so exact in regarding the times, numbers, and periods of our actions. For it is a life neither safe, easy, politic, nor like a man, but more like the life of an oyster or the trunk of a tree, to live so without any variety, and in restraint as to our meat, abstinence, motion, and rest, casting ourselves into a gloomy, idle, solitary, unsociable, and inglorious way of living, far remote from the administration of the state, at least, I may say, in my opinion. For health is not to be purchased by sloth and idleness, for those are chief inconveniences of sickness, and there is no difference between him who thinks to enjoy his health by idleness and quiet, and him who thinks to preserve his eyes by not using them, and his voice by not speaking. For such a man's health will not be any advantage to him in the performance of many things he is obliged to do as a man. 
idleness can never be said to conduce to health, for it destroys the very end of it. Nor is it true that they are the most healthful that do least. For Xenocrates was not more healthful than Phocion, or Theophrastus than Demetrius. It signified nothing to Epicurus or his followers, as to that so much talked of good habit of body, that they declined all business, though it were never so honourable. We ought to preserve the natural constitution of our bodies by other means, knowing every part of our life is capable of sickness and health. The contrary advice to that which Plato gave his scholars is to be given to those who are concerned in public business. For he was wont to say, whenever he left his school, Go to, my boys, see that you employ your leisure in some honest sport and pastime. Now to those that are in public office, our advice is, that they bestow their labour on honest and necessary things, not tiring their bodies with small or inconsiderable things. For most men, upon accident, torment themselves at watchings, journeyings, and running up and down, for no advantage and with no good design, but only that they may do others an injury, or because they envy them, or are competitors with them, or because they hunt after unprofitable and empty glory. To such as these I think Democritus chiefly spoke, when he said, that if the body should summon the soul before a court on an action for ill-treatment, the soul would lose the case. And perhaps on the other hand, Theophrastus spoke well, when he said metaphorically, that the soul plays a dear house-rent to its landlord the body. But still, the body is very much more inconvenienced by the soul when it is used beyond reason, and there is not care enough taken of it. For when it is in passion, action, or any concern, it does not at all consider the body. Jason, being somewhat out of humour, said that in little things we ought not to stand upon justice, so that in greater things we may be sure to do it. We, and that in reason, advise any public man to trifle and play with little things, and in such cases to indulge himself, so that in worthy and great concerns he may not bring a dull, tired, and weary body, but one that is the better for having lain still, like a ship in the dock, that when the soul has occasion again to call it into business, it may run with her like a sucking colt with the mare. Upon which account, when business gives us leave, we ought to refresh our bodies, grudging them neither sleep nor dinner, nor that ease which is the medium between pain and pleasure, not taking that course which most men do, who thereby wear out their bodies by the many changes they expose them to, making them like hot iron thrown into cold water, by softening and troubling them with pleasures, after they have been very much strained and oppressed with labour, and on the other side, after they have opened their bodies, and made them tender either by wine or venery, they exercise them either at the bar or at court, or enter upon some other business which requires earnest and vigorous action. Heraclitus, when he was in a dropsy, desired his physician to bring a draught upon his body, for it had a glut of rain. Most men are very much in the wrong who, after being tired or having laboured or fasted, moisten, as it were, and dissolve their bodies in pleasure, and again force and distend them after those pleasures. Nature does not require that we should make the body amends at that rate. But an intemperate and slavish mind, so soon as it is free from labour, like a sailor, runs insolently into pleasures and delights, and again falls upon business, so that nature can have no rest or leave to enjoy that temper and calmness which it does desire, but is troubled and tormented by all this irregularity. Those that have any discretion never so much as offer pleasure to the body when it is labouring, for at such times they do not require it at all, nor do they so much as think of it, their minds being intent upon that employ they are in, either the delight or diligence of the soul getting the mastery over all other desires. Epaminondas is reported wittily to have said of a good man that died about the time of the battle of Leuctra, 
how came he to have so much leisure as to die when there was so much business stirring it may truly be asked concerning a man that is either of public employ or a scholar what time can such a man spare either to debauch his stomach or be drunk or lascivious for such men after they have done their business allow quiet and repose to their bodies reckoning not only unprofitable pains but unnecessary pleasures to be enemies to a nature and avoiding them as such i have heard that tiberius caesar was wont to say that he was a ridiculous man that held forth his hand to a physician after sixty but it seems to me to be a little too severely said but this is certain that every man ought to have skill in his own pulse for it is very different in every man neither ought he to be ignorant of the temper of his own body as to heat and cold or what things do him good and what hurt for he has no sense and is both a blind and lame inhabitant of his body that must learn these things from another and must ask his physicians whether it is better with him in winter or summer or whether moist or dry things agree best with him or whether his pulse be frequent or slow for it is necessary and easy to know such things by custom and experience it is convenient to understand more what meats and drinks are wholesome than what are pleasant and to have more skill in what is good for the stomach than in what seems good to the mouth and in those things that are easy of digestion than in those that gratify our palate for it is no less scandalous to ask a physician what is easy and what is hard of digestion and what will agree with your stomach and what not than it is to ask what is sweet and what bitter and what sour they nowadays correct their cooks being able well enough to tell what is too sweet too salt or too sour but themselves do not know what will be light or easy of digestion and agreeable to them therefore in the seasoning of broth they seldom err but they do so scurvily pickle themselves every day as to afford work enough for the physician for that pottage is not accounted best that is the sweetest but they mingle bitter and sweet together but they force the body to partake of many and those cloying pleasures either not knowing or not remembering that to things that are good and wholesome nature adds a pleasure unmingled with any regret or repentance afterward we ought also to know what things are cognate and convenient to our bodies and be able to direct a proper diet to any one upon any change of weather or other circumstance as for those inconveniences which sordidness and poverty bring upon many as gathering of fruit continual labour and running about and want of rest which fall heavy upon the weaker parts of the body and such as are inwardly infirm we need not fear that any man of employ or scholar to whom our present discourse belongs should be troubled with them but there is a severe sort of sordidness as to their studies which they ought to avoid by which they are forced many times to neglect their body oftentimes denying it a supply when it has done its work making the mortal part of us do its share in work as well as the immortal and the earthly part as much as the heavenly but as the ox said to his fellow-servant the camel when he refused to ease him of his burthen it won't be long before you carry my burthen and me too which fell out to be true when the ox died so it happens to the mind when it refuses that little relaxation and comfort which it needs in its labour for a little while after a fever or vertigo seizes us and then reading discoursing and disputing must be laid aside and it is forced to partake of the body's distemper plato therefore rightly exhorts us not to employ the mind without the body nor the body without the mind but to drive them equally like a pair of horses and when at any time the body toils and labours with the mind then to be the more careful of it and thus to gain its well-beloved health believing that it obliges us with the best of things when it is no impediment to our knowledge and enjoyment of virtue 
either in business or discourse. End of section 20